You're pronouncing much better if you know how to say Kh. Khamani. The Ayatollah Khamani. Khamani. Yeah. Khamani. Khamani. Yes. Or Khomani. Khomani. Khamani. Khomani. Khamani. It's like it's like ebony <laughs> ivory. It's great. Absolutely. <laughs> History. I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History. And welcome to HILF, History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. <laughs> Have I mentioned how much I love this stuff? I mean it. Every subject, every guest. And as I research, record, and edit these, each episode becomes like a little bouncing baby to me. <laughs> so imagine my surprise when this one just jumped up and punched me right in the heart in a whole new way. <laughs> my guest, Zari Farapur, lives next door to me. She is 76, and we were friendly from the get-go. Hi, hello in the hallway, you know, get each other's mail when we traveled. But in the early days of COVID, when they were universally warning that the elderly were especially vulnerable and shouldn't go out, I knocked on her door to ask if we could bring her some groceries. And she said yes. And in a way, when she opened the door for me to carry them into her kitchen, it never really closed. For over a year, Zari was the only human being outside of my house that I spoke to in person. Chats in the doorway turned to coffee on the patio, which turned to tea at her kitchen table, which eventually became whiskey in the living room. <laughs> More than once, I found myself at one o'clock in the morning awash, not just in the maker's mark she pours so generously, <laughs> but in her captivating tales of her life in Iran. I recorded with Zari for a few sessions over two days, and what I've compiled here focuses primarily on the history of the Iranian Revolution and how it wove through the events of Zari's life. We had a lot of wild realizations during our many late-night talks, including that on December 7th, 1978, at almost the same hour that she was fleeing Iran, I was being born in a hospital in rural Wisconsin. <laughs> You're joining us as we recall that realization and more from our early talks. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. <laughs> that really blew my head away. Oh my, first of all, I didn't think I would be that old, which I was. <laughs> it was just mind boggling that we, some of our, um, both major events we're on the same date. Same you date. You were born and I was reborn, reborn. I would say. Uh, you were, we were both having a, a, a difficult <laughs> exit and entrance. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. A labored, Absolutely. a labored moment. And um, I really am excited about doing this episode. I think it's going to, to be fantastic. Now, Zari um, knows that the podcast is called Hilf History I'd Like to Fuck. And um, so we know that we are going to be treating this serious subject yeah. matter that is connected to your life very seriously. Um, with some levity and yes, with some absolutely. lightness and t telling the history as it happened um, and but understanding sort of the context of where we are. I have to tell you, sorry, most of my guests up until this point have been actors, comedians and bartenders. So you're in good company. So. <laughs> I think you're going to fit right in. Um, pleasure. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Anyone who has anything to say, it's just great to be amongst them. So here is my plan for this episode. Here's what mm. I'd like to do is um, I'm obviously not going to be telling my friend Zari anything she doesn't know about the Iranian revolution. But what I'm hoping is that together uh -huh. she and I can tell you listeners 
um, a story. You may be like I was approaching it and have a very fractured understanding of what went on. And I'm going to generally tell the story with you giving us these wonderful um, anchors to what was happening at the time to color it with your own experience. Mm. And I was telling Zari earlier today that one of the things that I'm thinking about as I'm framing this episode is what happens in 40 years when my daughter uh, Beatrice asks me about 9-11, for example. Yeah. And she will be able to go to a number of sources at that point and read the history. What day it was, what the weather was like that day, who was on the plane, who was in the buildings, who was the general of the army and vice president, what they mm-hmm. t- you know, she can have access to all of that. What I might be able to give her, though, in that moment is the story of how strange it was, how quiet the skies were that day, how the communication felt and how long you had to marinate in this mm-hmm. unknown on and that how day. how frightening it was. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely frightening. Yes. And so I'm hoping again, as I go through basically giving timelines, important mm-hmm. names, important events, I will be pausing throughout and, and, and you are welcome, of course, to interject at any point. Certainly if I make a mistake, <laughs> no, if I won't. mispronounce something, <laughs> no. please jump in. And also just, you know, anything that maybe jogged your memory or that occurs mm-hmm. to you at the time. Um, I can't wait. So here's a question for you, though. <laughs> what is the word fuck in Farsi? Or what's the equivalent? <laughs> Is there, or what's the foulest word? What's like your, oh. your nastiest curse word? You know, Farsi is a very funny language. You don't have, or I don't know that exact word, uh-huh. but some of the words that we use, you use it jokingly uh-huh. and you use it seriously. Like you say, pedarsag. In literally word means dog father. Ah. But you can say it lovingly or you can mean it. Mm. So you pedarsag means you asshole. Yeah. You know, that's. Yeah. But you, oh, pedarsag. You did that. Uh-huh. That's in love mixed with the word. I see. You know, I have so, a whole episode about cursing. You okay. know, how you, how people use the language and how you phrase it. And there's so many words like that in English too. Absolutely. Like shit. Shit is such a diverse word Absolutely. because it's. Oh shit! It can be wonderful. <laughs> it can be terrible. You, you little shit, or you. Pe- I mean, it just has so many colors. That's exactly what pedar sag means, or pedar suhte. Pedar suhte means your your father is burnt, uh-huh. your burnt father. Uh-huh. But at the same time, you know, it can be loving or it can be really nasty. Yeah. So tone and facial expression. Tone and facial expression. Like Absolutely. So if somebody. So somebody cuts you off in traffic, somebody spills their coffee on you and doesn't apologize, you call them a... Are you English words? Well, this is just going to be fantastic. I can't wait to get into the shit with you, sorry. Okay, let's uh, do it. Let's do it. So I'm, I, I'm not going to try to obviously give the history of Iran. I, I can't imagine how, where anyone if, would if begin. If you wanted to do that, you really haven't found the historian. <laughs> exactly. And it would be, it, it, Iran is the longest continuous human civilization on yes, planet Earth. There are continuous human settlements that date back 7,000 BC. Um, even the history that we're talking about, the revolution, is so recent, yes. it, comparatively. Absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a dominate, it's dominating, but yeah, it's, um, 
it's so it's a blip in in so many ways. What I am going to do is start in round about 1908, um, which is when oil is discovered mm-hmm. in Iran. Mm-hmm. It is Britain that first discovers this huge oil field under Iran. And you can guess in 1908, we don't have all of the uses that we have for oil right now. So we knew it was important. We yes. knew it was valuable. Um, but we were sort of approaching the revolution that was going to tell us how valuable this stuff was. Britain um, essentially nationalizes for themselves Iran's oil. They build the AIOC, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. Oil company. Britain owns 51% of it. Mm-hmm. And um, and and that is just the way it is. It's it's a, a, you know kind of the end of a colonizing mm-hmm. world in which mm-hmm. this is whether or not it's accepted. It's certainly happening all over the planet. And in 1909, Iran establishes their constitution. Um, so a lot of the infrastructure and a lot of the modern society was sort of building around a British model, in large mm-hmm. largely because of the impact of the oil. Mm-hmm. In 1921, there's a coup, which establishes the Pahlavi dynasty. Mm-hmm. And the coup is relatively bloodless. There was kind of an ineffectual king who was not doing a great job at protecting Iran from the Chinese and the Russians. And the Pahlavi was definitely backed by Britain. But was it Britain trying to take over Iran or was it Britain just kind of trying to not let it be Chinese or Russian? I'll let some other historian (laughs) suss out. (laughs) That's that's not my problem. But what we know is we have now this dynasty of the Shah of the Shah Pahlavi. Now, this this um, kind of brings us into the early 1940s and early 1950s when you're a child, right? Yes. So I was was born in 1946. And where were you born? What was your childhood? I was born in Tehran. And I had two older brothers. And what did your parents do? What was your, your My father's father role? My father was a lawyer, and he also owned a newspaper, which he published every day. And then this is just among my most favorite elements of, of your biography, sorry, <laughs> is at 15 years old, she is um, a, a Muslim teenage girl who does not speak English and has never seen a nun. And so she goes to London <laughs> alone to go to a Catholic girls' school. Tell me about that. How did that idea come around, and what were your feelings about that going in? The idea came around because at, after 1964-65, it was a thing. that They used to send um, kids when they finished high school to America most of the times. Sometimes they sent them to England or France. All I remember is one night... I was doing my homework and I sort of dozed off in the sitting room and uh, my parents were talking to each other and I remember uh, my mom says, no, I think we have to send her. Hmm. I didn't know who they were talking about and what they meant, but we have to send them. And later on, I realized they meant me and they (laughs) meant England. And my friend Mina was going to that, was going in that school. And um, I think she had come home for the summer because I remember her telling me about it. But, you know, not very enthusiastically, but she was telling me, oh, no, it's nice. You learn a language. She wasn't gung-ho about it. Yeah. But at that time, uh, when you went to England or when you went out of the country, it was big deal. Yeah. So I remember my flight was during the day and the whole family was there. <laughs> my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, everybody had come yeah. to see me off. And I remember that I was crying. Mm. 
I was happy, but I was also crying because the first time I was leaving my family, and basically we never, ha I never had sleepovers or I never stayed at night anywhere. Mm. Maybe once or twice oh my at my gosh. grandma's, but that was the first time I was actually yeah. leaving. Home. And they're seeing you off, but no one's escorting you. No, like, no one's was going with you. Yeah. No. How long was the flight the from flight Tehran to from London? From Tehran to London at that time it took me fourteen hours. Oh my gosh. Because we had three stops. Oh my gosh. And my brother was in, in England, but he was at Oxford. Uh -huh. He came to the airport to pick me up. And yeah. then when did you first see your first nun? Yeah. My brother took me in a taxi. Then we arrived. And the door opens. These women with weird clothes come and say hello. And I really was scared because I couldn't understand a word of what they're saying. And they didn't look like anything I had seen before. Right. No, I mean, they still look so strange. If people who have seen them before. I assumed when you t first told me that you are a young teenage Muslim girl in the 70s going to a Catholic school, all I've known of anyone who went to Catholic school was that it was a dark, vicious, unkind place, that uh -huh. nuns were cruel. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, my God, um, to, a, to mm -hmm. a, a Muslim girl, like a foreigner, they must have treated her with such cruelty and you were so you were no. like no absolutely not no no absolutely and they not. weren't converting you they, no. they were very mm -hmm. it wasn't a you know no. when in rome kind of deal and no. i i found that so surprising yeah did you find it surprising did you expect a no, different kind of why? treatment because i had absolutely no knowledge of <laughs> you didn't know going. enough to be nervous about i didn't it. know where i yeah. was going well, can you explain so, why they were so accepting of someone else's religion in their in their education system whereas some might predict that there is an in a way i think they believe that your actions can prove more than your words mm -hmm. so if you are a nun a christian nun and you are kind and you're helpful that in itself can draw you Mm -hmm. to the religion. Did you feel any pull to Christianity? Actually, I... This is horrible for me to say. I don't care. Let me tell you what I did. Every summer, the first summer, I didn't go back to Iran. Mm. But after the first summer, I went back to Iran every summer mm. for six weeks, because that's how long we had summer. And my father's uncle was an ayatollah, head of, hmm. you know, one of them. And an ayatollah is like a priest, right? High Compare priest. A high priest, yeah. I used to go to him and I asked all sorts of questions about Muslim religion. Mm -hmm. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And some things convinced me, some things threw me the other side. And so I became very knowledgeable about Islam. Huh. In a way... If you were a Muslim girl and you were running around, the headmistress of the school was very proud to say, look, we have a Muslim girl here. Sure. So one You're of the things that happened their camp. Yeah. was, I think by that time I was 17 or 18, and they called me to come and sit. And here's Archbishop, here's Zari, you know. And we started to talk, and he knew a lot about Islam. Ah. 
So he started questioning me and I answered him and said, oh my God, you do know a lot about your religion. I said, well, I was born like that, so I should better know. And then he said, well, do you have any questions for me? I said, only one. And the nuns were sort of looking at me. My God, what's she going to ask? I said, what I don't understand is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I don't know which is which. And he looked at me. And he said something that, you know, still, he said, in every religion, there is something not everybody would understand or not everybody would accept. Mm -hmm. The day you understand and accept that, that's the day you become a Catholic. Ah. And has it ever happened? I never become a Catholic. <laughs> and I left my Islam. <laughs> so, so now you're just I'm swimming out here with the rest citizen, of us. I'm a citizen of the world. And I, yes, that's it. Amen. What was happening, of course, in the backdrop of this time that you are going to England um, is is sort of the seed of the revolution is happening. Mm -hmm. And um, the next point of sort of the Iranian timeline that I want to jump into starts in 1951. Mm -hmm. There is still the king, the, the Shah Pahlavi, yeah. is the son of the the original um, uh, monarch who had who had established the coup in 1921. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. His son is the king, and it's similar, frankly, to Britain. There's a prime minister, and there's a monarchy, and they are complementary and, and work within each other and around each other. Mm. And um, the prime minister, democratically elected, is Mohammad Mousadiq in 1951. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he did and that he ran on was sort of reevaluating this oil situation mm. with Britain. Mm -hmm. And it started with him asking for an audit. He, he knew, you know, I know Britain has 51% of this. We have a smaller share, but I just want to see the numbers and basically mm. see how this is panning out. And the AIOC refused to show any mm -hmm. data, which ultimately led to Mousadiq nationalizing the oil for Iran and creating the National Iranian Oil Company. And that was largely celebrated in Iran. It was mm. considered this incredible act of sovereignty mm. And taking back what was theirs from yeah. this foreign entity, and um, and it was enormously popular. It, of course, ruffled the feathers of the power structure that mm. that was. And so, even though Mohammad Mousadiq was democratically elected and exercising his sovereign rights in his well, sovereign land, democratically elected at that time, uh, nobody voted for him. I don't think there, because at that time, the Shah. The Shah appointed him. Appointed yeah. him. The, the, it, I was actually curious about that because it, it does indicate the historical record describes him as simultaneously democratically elected and appointed by the Shah. And it sounds like there was the Maji. Am I pronouncing Majlis. that correct? Majlis. 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 Means the Senate. The Senate. Or the, that there was pressure from the Senate. Yeah. So there was sort of a legislative, but then yeah. it was as representative as it was yeah. sort of available at the time. Yeah. In any event, in 1953... He's deposed. It, 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 by ostensibly, it looks like a popular uprising. Mm -hmm. The historical record now shows it was very orchestrated. Yes. President Eisenhower in the United States, uh, that was called Operation Ajax. Winston Churchill is Prime Minister of Britain. They call it Operation Boot. Bribing people and funding a mob. And at the, the end of the day, Mohammed Mossadegh is deposed and put under house arrest and is, is put out of power. Mm -hmm. And all of the power is then consolidated in the hands of the Shah. Now, we have the benefit of, of where we are in history, mm -hmm. knowing all of these things. But the, the perspective on the ground in Iran mm -hmm. was that 
the Shah was a traitor to Iran mm-hmm. because he deposed this guy that everybody loved and who had done all these great things mm-hmm. for Iran. The perception was that he had privatized the oil company and it had benefited few mm-hmm. and disenfranchised more. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, he had he, all these foreign powers and, and he was also um, anti-cleric and had made illegal a lot of... Um, headscarves and and was f- ruffling the feathers no, the, of a lot the of, the, of the clerics as well mm-hmm. came from his father uh-huh his father was the one who um, emancipated women women and well, banned the headscarf and banned and the headscarf and this and, and it was so and the secret police the savak am i pronouncing yeah, that right savak. s-a-v-a-k yeah. did um undisputedly exercise mm-hmm. violent acts executions Absolutely. arrests Absolutely. we now know a lot of the work of the secret police was actually being done by the cia mm-hmm. but it made no friends the now, training the was done hand, by the cia <laughs> very effective mm-hmm. on the other hand what was happening on the ground was largely progressive mm-hmm. and largely benefited the larger population of Iran. Absolutely. Women's rights were expanded. Mm-hmm. Gays, there was a there was a faux gay marriage performed Absolutely. in the palace. Uh, there was freedom of movement, not a lot of freedom of speech. Speech was pretty censored and shut and closed off. So, the, but there were critics. But the bottom line is, there were critics that were from the left. <laughs> that criticized the Shah for being too authoritarian. And then there were these religious critics, the clerics who were saying it was too secular. And then just sort of a bubbling unrest of kind of fight the man. So in 1963, Shah Pahlavi starts kind of, he hasn't started, it's been going on for some time. They call Mm. it the white revolution. And it's basically taking a lot of this oil money and reinvesting it into Iran in infrastructure, education, hospitals, and a westernizing and a modernizing and a secularizing of Iran. And one of the chief critics of the Shah at this time arises, and it is the Ayatollah Khomeini. He is arrested first for saying that the Shah was a, quote, a miserable man. Mm -hmm. And so he's arrested for that. Again, from a Western modern perspective, you can't arrest a guy for saying the king is miserable. He (laughs) became an Ayatollah because they can't... Uh, arrest you. Arrest. It was an Ayatollah. Yeah, because he was he ro- became an Ayatollah. How do you how do you pronounce it? Rohala was it? Rohala. Rohala. Uh-huh. So he was Rohala Khomeini at this time, uh-huh. and he is exiled. He's arrested mm-hmm. at first and put under house arrest, and he's continuing to agitate. So he's exiled to Iraq, mm-hmm. which is as you point out, where he becomes an Ayatollah, so that he's insulated from some yes. of the persecution. It's sort of like a church declaring yourself a yes. church, so you're tax free, right? Absolutely. So, but he's still in Iraq. Uh, sending out mm. cassette tapes and records and, and agitating from but a distance became much 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 lower much lower especially but yes because yeah, he's absolutely. in he's in he's in exile and this is in like 1964 so you i know your time i want to go back to your time in london i think a lot of us who are listening in the united mm-hmm. states are picturing a teenage girl in london yeah did you party did oh you really <laughs> embrace the like culture or what we were couldn't. you doing no the nuns weren't letting you out no, no. because okay. it was a boarding school how aware were you of the popular culture even if you weren't going out and partying? Oh, no 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 we were um, the beatles were it and so if i uh, could get into a time machine mm-hmm. and went to your convent landed mm-hmm. landed in secret mm-hmm. on the lawn in 1965 mm-hmm. where would i be finding zari and her friends hanging out what would you guys be doing 65 was hyde park you know you'd go to hyde park and you see boys and girls sitting smoothing whatever and um 
when you would come home to Iran yeah. for your brief visits, were your friends in Iran very curious about what you were doing you know, in London? It's very funny because they were very curious, but they were freer than I was. Of course, because they're not in a convent, right? They're not in a convent. So they, ha- they knew more about all the, uh, I don't know, actors, actresses, what was going on than I did. Yeah. Crazy. Did you consider Music. at all staying in London? No, it's very funny because at the back of our heads, we were supposed to get good education and go back and help our country. Right. How much of this unrest that mm-hmm. is happening in Iran were mm-hmm. you aware of while you were studying in London? I mean, this would have been, you know, the the, the uh, Khomeini has been exiled. Uh-huh. The white revolution is starting. There's some whispering Very of little. this stuff. I learned about that when I went to Iran for the right. holidays. Ah. The news were hardly ever sure. told or written about in, in London mm-hmm. newspapers. or, And even if they were, we didn't get any. Right. So, right. and they and, didn't, and it took nine days for a letter to come to England from Tehran and nine days to go back. I remember they were very intrigued by a Persian girl because all they thought was, uh, you know, these English movies they had seen with uh, a fan, somebody fanning yeah. you oh, from sure, behind. Sure. This is what they thought we yeah. were. And as I said, they knew Farah Deepa, they knew Persian Cat, and they knew uh, Persian Carpet. <laughs> so when they saw me, they thought I would have servants going around all day. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> Bowing to yeah. me. Or I would say, snap my finger, and they would bring me water. Yeah. So at least you were as ignorant <laughs> of them as they were of you, and it was kind of even ground. I need somebody. I was three years in boarding school, one year as a day school, uh-huh. which I stayed with a family, and then uh, two and a half years of college. I see. And then when did you go back to Iran full time? I think it was sixty-eight uh, or sixty-seven. Six, six, yeah, sixty-eight. And what was your plan for your life when you returned? And I wanted to go and teach for a few years, and then open my own school. Wonderful. That was my plan. You get back to Iran in mm-hmm. 67, 68. And how long is it after that that you meet your your husband-to-be? My husband-to-be. Actually, I went to Iran, I think, in July. And we met in the end of August. So fast. People. So you, yeah, so you get home, you meet this guy, he's handsome. No. No. He wasn't handsome. <laughs> what, what made you fall for? He was very for? charming. He was very charming. He was extremely charming. And you know... I was 22 in a lot of ways going on 16. Sure, because you just left. In interaction with boys as, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And he was at that time 30, he was 13 years older than I was. 22, he was 35. Yeah, so he's mature, mature he's charming. And very charming and knew what to do with a (laughs) 22-year-old. Of course. And you, you get married? You have a son. And I remember you telling me on one of our late night drinking Mm -hmm. escapades uh, about your marriage and your divorce. 
And I remember being uh, shocked again uh, mm-hmm. among the things from your story that had my mouth kind of on the floor was, you know, the the freedom of your growing up, your education in London, how nice nuns were. <laughs> I mean, none of it added up. And then you got married and then you got divorced. And, and you said, I got divorced. And I, I kind of paused on that. And I thought, oh, boy, right? In mm-hmm. Islam, you're a woman, you're asking for a divorce. It's the 1970s. I mean, it was hard to get a divorce in Iowa mm-hmm. in the 1970s. And you said, no, just, yeah, you just, I decided to get a divorce and that was it. And I, yeah. oh my God, fascinating. Did you, what am I, am I um, painting that inaccurately? Was it more difficult? And, and was it as easy for all women in Iran at the time as it was for you? Yes, because by that time, women could vote. Uh, women had the right to ask for a divorce. Yeah. I had absolutely no difficulty when I was getting my divorce. And what year was that? That was in 1977. This is about the time Mm -hmm. that there is disruption at large. In January through July, the the language and the rhetoric Mm -hmm. against the Shah was building. And it was a lot of students. It was a lot of poets. They were holding like conferences where they would read essays that were critical of Uh the Shah. And primarily what these early voices were saying was really specifically, they wanted the Shah to align himself more with the constitution from 1909 and they had really specific outlines of like constitutional elements that they felt that he was he was defying one of the reasons for the escalation of the revolution was unfortunately a lot of well-educated lefties um, started spreading a lot of lies Mm -hmm. about the regime that really triggered a lot more of masses being against the Shah than they would have been. And these lies that Zari is talking about were so insidious and so pervasive. And Mm. yet what was happening in real life and outward facing didn't help dissuade those false accusations. For example, in November of 1977, the Shah Pahlavi goes to the White House Mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. to meet Jimmy Carter and they toast with expensive champagne, Iranian students in D.C. protest outside and are tear gassed. Yeah. So this sends up, look at him toasting champagne while these students are tear gassed. Then a month later, in December, Carter comes to Iran, is hosted mm-hmm. by the Shah, and is criticized yet again for these marble toilets yeah. and the champagne fountain and the affluence when the feeling on the ground is that this income inequality mm-hmm. and who has access to the oil and who has rights to all these things is narrower and narrower. And it becomes kind of critical. Yeah. Then then we get to the beginning of 1978. So my friend Zari is divorced and working um, on being a participant in the education system. Um, I am developing a spinal cord, <laughs> really filling out my, my optical orbs. <laughs> um, and in um, January of 1978, an article is printed on the front page of a popular paper criticizing the Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm-hmm. Now, again, as we sit in the modern day, these were probably a, a, a totally accurate accusations mm-hmm. of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who proved to be one of the most disastrous leaders and one of the most um, dangerous uh, forces in any sort of leadership. I don't know what they were saying about him in the front page of the paper, but to your point, the voices on the ground predominantly leftists 
but also those who were starting to advocate for an Islamic Republic blasted the government for publishing something incendiary about a cleric when they were repressing the speech of everybody else. That causes a huge uproar and there are now street protests. The law enforcement's response to those protests gets violent, some students are killed. The Ayatollah, from, still from exile, and other clerics then call for a recognition of within mm-hmm. Islam this 40 days after the death of a martyr yeah. to have another, pro- another street protest and gathering. So between the months of March and May, there, like every 30, 40 days, there's another huge street protest to sort of memorialize the students and the mm-hmm. people that were killed in the previous protest, and each one is getting... bigger and longer and and scarier then starting in june of 1978 so we're only six months away from my birth and Mm -hmm. your fleeing um the shah starts to make some concessions to this growing crowd he fires the police chief of the savik sava the secret police he releases 300 political prisoners and he's starting to make speeches that are like calm down i hear you i and it does nothing to Mm -hmm. slow the trend it really momentum um is is filled and just getting and frankly even if there were leftist voices or or factions within this sort of diverse group that were appeased by what the shah was saying the vacuum the space was filled with uh, the ayatollah and the clerics and it never reduced that was when also the major lies and here's one major lies and this major lies all right this one was one that i could almost do a whole episode Mm -hmm. on it alone because lies are lies are lies they're Mm -hmm. insidious and they're awful but when they can coalesce around a particular event Mm -hmm. it's really drastic so about the uh, cinema yeah yeah so in august of 1978 there's the cinema rex fire Mm -hmm. for those of you who are unfamiliar um it is a a movie theater a very Mm -hmm. modern movie theater in the city of abadan Abaddon, modern cinema. And it's showing the film called The Deer, which I saw some of. I looked it up. It's beautiful. It's a a really interesting movie. It is really well acted. It is Mm -hmm. anti-government. It is a story about a poor family struggling against the system. Mm -hmm. Um, So certainly the movie that was being shown was kind of anti-government, anti-Shah. But the movie theater itself, just being a Western Mm -hmm. cinema, was very modern and very Mm -hmm. Western and very secular. And about 18 minutes into this movie, three different arsonists lock the doors, douse the place in airline fuel, and light it on fire. And somewhere between 398 and 477 people die inside. It is immediately blamed on the Shah and the secret police. And this message came, as Zari is saying, from the leftists, supported by the clerics, it was a foregone conclusion that this was a target by the Shah and the secret police. Mm-hmm. At the time, I think, it, from what I could tell, there were some voices that were sort of skeptical about that because it was such a Western secular theater that they were like, this is also a place that the Islamic radicals are targeting also. And some of the concessions that the Shah was making was closing nightclubs closing cinemas i mean he was sort of responding to some of these things in Mm -hmm. kind so there were those that were like well lots of people would have wanted to burn down this movie theater it's hard to say how we can be so sure it was the shah we now know with 
our benefit of history that it was an Islamist extremist yeah, absolutely. who did it. It wasn't just just that. There were a lot of other things. Individuals were, I mean, uh, one writer went swimming and was drowned because he had written a children's book, which became very negative. But that book was really written for children and they were able to maneuver and make it a political mm, a uh, death. story. There was similar. There was another story I read about of a cleric north in the country who uh -huh. died in a car crash. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and they the, said the Shah. The Savak killed him? The Savak Very killed him. openly. And the people who were there later on came. I mean, you can see a lot of, a lot of these negative, you know, who were, who were helpful mm. there to spread this kind of lies. And now saying, we apologize. We sure. are so sorry sure. because we were the ones who spread these. And it, uh, yeah, it's such an incident. It happens so many times throughout history uh -huh. that there is like, it's like a fire itself yes. of suspicion. And what happens after the Cinema Rex fire and the, and the protests that result is the Shah institutes martial law. And you can really see, regardless of how you're, what perspective you have on mm -hmm. this history, how this is an avalanche. This is a landslide. This is getting bigger. There, he, he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Yeah. Either, either you crack down on these uprisings and prove mm -hmm. yourself to be the authoritarian leader they're accusing you of mm -hmm. or you make these concessions that mm -hmm. seems to feed the beast so he establishes martial law there's more violence the ayatollah specifically says defy that martial law and take to the streets in greater numbers and i read a statistics zari that at the height or around this time the middle mm -hmm. of 1978 um that 10 percent of the population of Iran was participating actively in these protests. That is a staggering figure because in almost any other estimation of where protesters and the population now people uh -huh. are, it never gets above 1%. Mm -hmm. So the Shah is also in this incredibly difficult position where almost regardless of whether it's real or perceived, the people are activated and therefore a weapon, right? It culminates in September on what is known as Black Friday. And I want you to tell me where you were, because if I recall, you had some pretty incredible proximity to that yeah. particular riot. Um, when I was in Iran during the past eight years of my life, I worked what I called my education, my heaven. I worked for Institute for the Intellectual Development of Children and Young Adults. And uh, we had libraries all over Iran. By the time the revolution ca came, we actually had 225 libraries for children. Mm. But they were really more of cultural centers. They weren't just libraries. About 15 mobile libraries. Mobile libraries were these huge buses that were gutted and then filled up with uh, shelves. And it would go from village to village, from school to school. and Great. act as a library. And what was your role within okay. that? When the revolution happened, I was in the public relations department and I was um, in charge of seeing guests when they arrived to Iran. And sometimes there would be uh, uh, a new library opening up mm -hmm. and usually Shahbanu, the queen, we called her Shahbanu, she came for the opening. I think the library was being renovated or something. And I remember on Friday, which was the Black Friday, 
my friend and I sat in a car belonging to the institute and went to see the library to make sure everything was okay. And the library is in Tehran? Yes, downtown Tehran. On the way, I saw a lot of people ch chanting. and But you know, the way they described it, that thousands of people were killed, I didn't see that. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing groups of people gathering, uh -huh. but you're not getting a sense of this incredible violence. No. At, at what point, though, did you decide to get out of there, to turn it the around and point. go home? No, the whole thing. No, I didn't turn around. We went to the library. Ah. We went to the library. And then at that time, I thought if this, even this, what we saw continues tomorrow, I don't think it would be safe for the queen to come all the way from uptown to, to the library and opening up. So I called up. Mrs. Arjuman, who was the managing director of the, and who was, who started the whole thing. And I said, you know, we are here uh, and we don't think it's safe to have this program tomorrow. So she said, I'll call you back. We didn't have any cell phones then. Yeah. So she called back in about 15, 20 minutes later and said, no, we're canceling the thing. And on the way back, that was when we saw tanks and uh, soldiers and cars coming. And it wasn't a smooth ride back, correct? It wasn't, and it was. And it became a smooth ride because our driver knew other ways to get us. Did you say that the driver switched cars at some yes. point to make you less conspicuous? Yes, 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 absolutely. We had come with the car belonging to the Institute and the driver lived in that area. Mm -hmm. So he went to his cousin's home or one of the relatives' home and left that car and brought out a car which was, it had no writing on it. And we went through the back roads, which he knew, mm -hmm. I had no idea where we were. And it took us a little bit longer, but we got to the northern part of Tehran, which you would believe you were in a different city altogether. There was nothing going on. And when you Absolutely got home, going on. and you had, now you have seen the tanks, you've seen Absolutely. the crowds, you've had to switch cars and hide, Absolutely. and you get home, and did that's you get a I sense? See, I got to my parents' home. Yeah, oh, uh -huh. I went to my parents' home, which was further north. They dropped me off. I went home, and the whole family was there. And our relatives were there because Fridays was like a Sunday here. Uh -huh. You know, you gathered around, you had lunch and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I had just gotten there for lunch and there was nothing going on. And I started talking. I said, you don't know what's going on in this country? They said, what is going on? Because at that time, they wouldn't show it on TV simultaneously. Sure. They may see something at night and that was it because they... TVs came on at six o'clock and, uh -huh. <laughs> but and did the newspapers? I mean, was there no publications that your that your not family was reading? I see, sure, because it was happening so fast. The Friday, nothing would come up. Yeah, less sure. The next yeah. day, Saturday, the morning papers would write about it. Mm -hmm. You know, but you the, had just the been news, there. They you, would mm -hmm. have clippings of it, but we had seen it. No idea. And so did I, you did you feel when you? When you got home and you said, you guys have no idea what's going on, did what was your feeling at that time? Were you thinking this will go away, this will calm down, it will go past? Or did you have a sense that it was the beginning? You know, it was a little bit more frightening that jump, than something temporary. Hmm. You know, it mm -hmm. was. And uh, especially 
after like a week or 10 days, the heads of different big places were going out and new people were coming mm. in. A lot of uh, ministers, they all had to resign. And yeah. And this is, an, and as part of, I'm, I'm sure, individual choice, but also the, the Shah is trying to appease I, and he's trying. Prime Minister was changed, so they yeah. brought in prime minister, new Prime Minister who had to come in with his. Mm-hmm. So everything was changing a little bit too fast. All too fast. And in October, about a month after Black Friday, mm-hmm. the Shah requests that the Ayatollah in exile in Iraq is moved further away to France. It, it is sort of his, he's like, I get, this guy is obviously agitating yeah. and it's, it's um, a mistake. It's very easy to look at something 43 years later <laughs> yeah. and say this was a mistake. Of course. At that time, nobody knew what was a mistake. No, nobody knew. And, and you're exactly right because the Shah is thinking, here's the Ayatollah. The Ayatollah Khomeini in Iraq is continuing to agitate these cassette tapes, these letters, these things he's writing. And so he figures he was, from away. He was a Muslim country. Right. So he's thinking, he let's move him if further. If he goes away. to mm-hmm. a Christian country, maybe he wouldn't be as. Yeah. No, this helped. mistake, there would have been no way for him to know. No. What, what ultimately happened, however, is in France, Khomeini has access to significantly better yeah. communication technology Absolutely. and is able to actually extend and expand his reach once he moves to France. We did some, something we did not realize then, and I think after 30 years, it's just now up in the open. Wherever Khomeini had been, he would have had the same mm-hmm. kind of... Yeah. Because the bigger uh, people wanted him in Iran. The system was so, conspiring. He would have been there. Yeah. And a month later, mm-hmm. in November 6th of 1978, we're just a month away. Um, month the Shah, and a day. <laughs> a month and a day, that's right. The, the Shah continues to make more concessions and he does this big televised speech. Yes. Where he, to, to your point, no, you know, people are are tuning in and mm-hmm. starting to kind of uh, figure out exactly what the details are of this thing. He appears on television, um, very in a very capitulated stance, very vulnerable. He says, "I'm embarrassed." He says, "I approve of this revolution," and it, and he's hoping that this might calm the 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 crowd, which it does not. And then one month later, December sixth. The day before you leave, the day before I make my big debut, um, Jimmy Carter wavers publicly for the first time in his support of the Shah and says, of course, we support the Shah, but it's ultimately the people's decision, mm-hmm. which was a pretty clear signal it, to the powers that be and the people that were yeah. looking that this huge military ally that had yeah. been a presumptive insulator of the Shah was not going to flex yeah. their full power. Mm-hmm. And it is the next day that you leave. Can you tell me what was going through your mind and what conversations were happening in your family in those days before you left? You remember what day it was? The day of the week? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Is a Thursday. Thursday, I thought so. Yeah. I thought so. Because on Saturday, I went to my parents' house in the afternoon with my son after work. And my father said, well, we're leaving on Thursday. I said, oh, well, good. My mother can use it, you know. Because my mother had problem with her heart, mm. so all these anxiety was not very good for her. And at that time, my father was sort of semi-retired. He said, no, uh, we've gotten tickets for you and your son. So we're all leaving. I said, what? He said, because if you don't leave, your mom is not going to leave. 
Hmm. And that's sort of blackmailing me in a way. So anyway, I had like four days to pack up. I remember I gave my keys to one of my good friends. I said, I don't think we're coming back anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Just do what you can. She said, I'm going to sell your furniture. I'm going to do this. And I said, whatever you. And um, we left on Thursday. Our flight was, I think, I remember our flight was at 9 o'clock. We were at the airport at 6. Because mm. they said you have to. And we were in line, and we were in line. And the line wasn't moving. So I went in the front, and I was going. we were going with British Airways. And when we got there, I said, what's happening? She said, the flight is full. I said, excuse me? She said, yes, the flight is full. I said, how did it become full when we we're standing here? She said, I said, oh, I started screaming. Oh, so you sold some of the seats extra. And then she realized that I'm not the person to, you know, to quiet down. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, 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 give me your tickets. I gave four tickets and she bang, bang, bang. And she said to them, come take them in. Or she's going to make a big stink yeah. here. Yeah. And they put our suitcases through and I we went back. And I made that fuss because I knew if my father starts to make a fuss, that's going to be much more difficult to handle. But the way I said it, oh, so you sold the seeds to other people who were paying more. Yeah, you weren't the only ones that were reading the writing on the wall. No. For this one. No. Now, you've told me in the past that your son, in hindsight, he was kind of aware. Mm -hmm. We were taking more toys for my son. Not everything, but, you know, a few of his mm -hmm. favorite toys. And when, usually when we were going to any trip, he would be all jolly and happy and all that. And I remember I had bought a bicycle for him like two or three months before. And um, when we were leaving, I said, can we give this life? Um, my father had, a, had someone who was helping him. And he had a son who was the same age. And I asked him, do you think we could give this bicycle to him? Because we don't know if you're coming back in two months or three time months. Mm. By then you'll be taller and this would be too small for you. Mm -hmm. That's the way I brought it. He said, sure, mommy. And I, we gave the bicycle away and he cuddled with his nanny. And we sat in the car to go. And he turned around and was looking uh, through the back window. And the nannies had tears coming down. And I was looking in front of me. And I had tears coming down. My and uh, he realized that this is a big good not coming back soon. Hmm. So when we were on the plane, he said, Mommy, we're not going back soon, are we? I said, we don't know, maybe, maybe soon, maybe later, but uh, we're going to be in London that you like. And, you know, I started telling him all the things that he was going to see in London. Yeah. Because when you, when something like this happens, the most important thing is the child. Yeah. And so you have, you have him enrolled in school. Your, your parents are with you. Your immediate family is safe. Mm -hmm. And you, I'm assuming at this point, are very connected, as connected as you can be to the news and you're trying to, to hear the updates. I remember then when I was in England, you would turn on the TV in the morning, Iran this. Yeah. Turn it on in the afternoon, Iran this. It was the headline Iran, all over the world. All over the 
newspapers, all over the television, all over the radio, Iran was it. Yeah. And when that's when we realized that, you know, yeah. it is serious. And then when it became serious, when the Shah left, yeah. the, the killings started. That was yeah. one of the most horrible years of all of our lives. Yes. And, and we are going to, to get into that, the, mm -hmm. the really, really scary dark cloud mm -hmm. that descended mm -hmm. upon Iran so quickly. Um, in really the days and, and weeks mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. you left, that you really, Absolutely. you and your family undoubtedly left Absolutely. in the nick of time. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to take a short break. Sure. And you know what I want you to do? Zari what? offered me, when I first got here, she offered me tea or whiskey. Uh -huh. And so I think we did the first half was tea, and now I want some whiskey. But... Hey, it's Christine Blackburn from Storyworthy. Every Tuesday, listen to a brand new Storyworthy with fantastic comedians like Avi Lieberman, Bruce Baum, Steph Tolov, Dawn Brody, Ed Krasnick, and Angela Johnson-Reyes. Plus, you'll hear true stories from other fantastic people like author Marion Keys, author Haley McGee. How about hearing a true story from the one and only Peter Brady, Christopher Knight? Well, that's the kind of entertainment you're going to hear over on Storyworthy. So check out Storyworthy, brand new every Tuesday. And one more thing, make it a Storyworthy week. Hey, while Zari pours the whiskey, let me remind you that you can see photos of me and Zari, find links to historic archives and videos of some of the events we describe on our Instagram page, at Hilf Podcast. You can also reach out to us with any questions or suggestions, hilfpodcast at gmail.com. And since you're at your keyboard anyway, go ahead and leave us a rating, a review, or share your favorite episode with your people and tell the world to... Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. To you and your long life. Mm. Zari has poured me um, this beautiful highball of Maker's Mark. So nice. I remember when we first started hanging out during COVID and we would, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring a glass of wine or I'll bring a bottle of wine. And then w within a few weeks, I was like, it's whiskey, actually. I'd like to just really, <laughs> why, why beat around the bush? This is a, this is a very drinking time. <laughs> now, Zari is looking up some specific dates on her phone. Because where we left our history, um, my, my friend Zari is living in London. Her parents are there. Her seven-year-old son, who's turning eight shortly, and you and everybody, not just in London, not just in mm -hmm. Iran, but really around the world, is tuning into this revolution. It was a, it was a shock to most of the world, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and nobody's quite sure what's going on next. Um, back in Iran, just a few weeks after you leave, on December 29th of 1978, the Shah, yet again, trying to sort of appease these masses, thinking maybe he can put out this revolution, appoints a new prime minister, Shapur Bakhtar. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Shapur Bakhtar. And he is... You pronounce it much better if you know how to say <laughs> Okay, I'll give it a try. Uh, Shapur Bakhtar. Bakhtiar. Bakhtiar. Very good. All right. Getting there. Um, now, and this guy, Bakhtiar. <laughs> <Tiar. laughs> Try not to tell it. 
I'll just say Big Big Bicky, Big Bicky. (laughs) Um, He is uh, a a critic of the Shah. And part of the reason why this is a big appointment is because he was on the leftist side and he had been one of these vocal opponents to the Shah. And the Shah is thinking, okay, I appoint this guy prime minister. It'll be a clear and obvious sign. Mm -hmm. I am welcoming the criticism. I'm ready to start reconciling. And Bakhter is simultaneously continuing to be critical of the Shah, but recognizing the real threat that the Ayatollah Khomeini poses. And yet, knowing what he does about the spirit of the revolution, he agrees to this and tries to to do it. Within um, a couple of weeks, on January 16th, the Shah and the Queen decide to go on what they call a vacation to Egypt. It is apparent to everyone that he's busting out that he's he's leaving for a million reasons and one of them is because he's in fear of his safety and he knows kind of what's about to happen next and he says to Bakhter good luck buddy i i will hope, good this no. is in your hands mm-hmm. i wish you the best and he in turn invites the ayatollah khomeini to return to iran in what appeared to be a, okay, I'm I'm now the prime minister from a position of strength. I invite him back. Then we join hands. And Bakhtar has said at the time and, and, and afterwards, his idea was that it would be like a Vatican, mm-hmm. that the clerics yeah. could coalesce behind Khomeini and they would have sort of a, a religious center, but that he and the government would still be able to run independently from the clerics. And it's really interesting when I looked at these photographs, Zari, you see Bakhter and Khomeini on stage together. Visually, mm-hmm. you see that Khomeini is in the clerical garb with the headdress and the robes, and Bakhter is wearing a suit. He looks like one of Jimmy Carter's guys. Mm-hmm. He's a very Western... Sec- and you can see literally these forces, these kind of colliding and opposing figures in very colliding and opposing looks. And Bakhter does something to the effect of... Um, okay, welcome, I'm the prime minister. And, and Khomeini in that meeting says, I have appointed a prime minister of my own. And Bakhtar says, no, I'm the prime minister and you're whatever you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And Khomeini says publicly and in a speech, I will kick your teeth in. I appoint the government. I alone appoint the government. He returns on February 1st, and by February 11th, the government is completely dissolved. Bakhtier has fled to France. There are lots of assassination attempts on him. It is eventually successful. In 1991, he is assassinated in France. And the um, apparatus and how this apparatus is going to work becomes fundamentally clear to everyone, those who wanted it, those who didn't, those who had hoped for a better, a better outcome. I, I haven't referenced it much, but this was a point in the Iran Awakening by Shireen Abad. Is Am I saying it? Shireen? Shireen Abadi. Um, she was a leftist who fought against the Shah. She was vocal. She was in the streets. She was also a 22-year-old judge. So she was a secular. She is exercising, living fully within the freedom that women are enjoying and the modernization. But she opposes the authoritarianism and the um, what she considered anti-constitutional way that the Shah was governing. Again, she's a judge. She's so excited when the when the Shah leaves and the Ayatollah comes back. She describes herself as being flush with victory. She goes to work, and two days later. 
two days. I mean, there's still confetti in the streets. <laughs> she goes to work at the Justice Department and she runs into her boss's office full of revolutionary success saying, can you believe it? We've done it. We've done it. He's gone. The Shah is gone. And he says, it's really great, isn't it? Don't you think you should put your headscarf on? Cover your hair. And she's immediately taken back. And she says in the book, she's her face crinkles up. She goes, we've just basically won a revolution. And you're talking about my hair? Like, what is this? And he says, it's out of respect for the Ayatollah who's come back and how things are going to go. I think you should cover your hair. And she says, no, I've never covered my hair before. And she says, it would be hypocritical for me to cover my hair. And he says, then don't be a hypocrite and believe it and cover your hair. Within weeks, she's demoted because women cannot be judges. Mm -hmm. Within weeks after that, she's demoted again. And she finds herself sitting in the basement of the Justice Department, the building in which she had been a judge less than a month earlier. And she's also looking over the new rules and the new constitution that the uh, Ayatollah, as the Supreme Leader, has set up. Among them, Islam is the law. Anyone who defies Islam defies the government, defies him, and will be punished. And, and one of the things in particular that comes across her desk is the new law, the new rule, mm -hmm. that is a woman's life is worth literally half of a man's. And the way that that demonstrates it in the, in the law that she's now practicing, because she's been demoted to being a lawyer again, is that if you are driving a car and you hit a woman with your car and you kill her, you owe half of the fine of what you owe if you hit a man to our conversation earlier the rights that a woman has within marriage and ownership are completely rewritten during this period of time and she makes no qualms about saying i realized i had made a critical critical mistake and there's not and the and they start you know keep in mind this is only three years after the beginning of the revolution and so a lot of the intellectuals and the leftists mm -hmm. are thinking we've done this we're not actually scared mm -hmm. of an authoritarian mm -hmm. leader because we have already done this so they start doing what they had done in 1977 they start writing letters and they start having these discussions and the ayatollah rounds mm -hmm. them up and executes them it says we didn't you didn't like censorship before buddy buckle up and the stark realization and the elimination of enemies happens so, so quickly. In um, February of 1979, they rewrite the Constitution. And by November of 1979, we have the Iran hostage crisis. A group of students, they're all young. I mean, 20, I think the oldest one was 20 years old. Uh -huh. Scale the wall at the U.S. Embassy and take 57 Americans hostage. Their mm -hmm. goals, they said, were pretty loose. They didn't know exactly. Generally, they were mad that the Shah was getting cancer treatment in the United States, and they mm -hmm. wanted the Shah to come back to Iran to stand trial. But other than that, it was just, fuck you, USA. We don't fucking like you. We never fucking have. And now yeah. we've learned that we can scale a wall and just take you if we want. And they are hostages for 444 days. They are not released until January 20th, 1981, which is Ronald Reagan's inauguration. Mm -hmm. Where were you and how much were you aware of the hostage crisis? Okay, I was very much aware of the hostage crisis. But let me tell you this story because it resonates with the majority of my life. Yes, let's hear it. I think in January of 1980, what year was that? It's November 4th, 1979 is when it begins. Mm. And they are released in 1981. So they're held for just about over a year, just over okay. a year. Okay. In 19. 80, January of 1980, I was invited to go to New York and I was sort of 
sort of offered a job. I had loved New York before, and we started working, and I loved it. So I rented an apartment, furnished it, and I was living there, I was working, and it was just wonderful. My son had stayed with my parents because my parents said, don't take him in January. He would be sort of, he would feel lost. In March, I went back to London to see my son, my parents, and all that. I wanted to stay for 10 days and come back. I get to London, and when you go through the immigration, uh, there was a young man who looked at my passport and he said, why are you here? I had never been asked that question before. I didn't know what to say. I had always thought of as England like my second home mm -hmm. because I'd lived there for six, seven years. And then since the revolution, we had come there, we lived there, I had an apartment there, I bought an apartment there, my parents were there. My son was going to school and I was so happy for his stableness. And I said, I didn't know what I said. I didn't know what to say. I said, I'm here to see my son. I'm here to see my parents. My son's photograph was on my, in my passport. And that was the only passport he had. He didn't have a separate passport. Anyway, the young man goes to the back, comes forward, goes to the back, comes forward. And then finally he said, okay, I've done something wonderful for you. And I said, what's that? Um, I had arrived on a Tuesday. Our new year was at exact time of equinox mm. at one o'clock in the afternoon. And this was about nine o'clock in the morning. I said, I am giving you permission to go into town and spend your new year or whatever it is you have to do. Very rude at that time. Mm. And you've got to be here on Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, I have booked you on a flight back to New York, which leaves at about 11.30. I didn't know what to say. I said, okay. He kept my passport and um, my ticket. And he said, go. So I went home. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. It was the new year. I went, after the new, we did our new year ceremony and all that, I said, what has happened? And my father got hold of his lawyer. My aunt got hold of another lawyer. My friend got on. There were three lawyers mm. all over London <laughs> trying to have me stay one week. They couldn't do it. Thursday morning, I go back to the airport. They took me directly to the airplane. Mm. And he took me up and sat me in the middle seat and gave my passport and my ticket to the air hostess mm. and said, Somebody is going to meet her there. They just wanted you out. They just wanted me out. I could not believe this was the country that was like sec my second home. Yeah. And they were U.S. I mean, <laughs> the hostage crisis was happening to U.S. citizens. It's sort of like, what's your problem? Anyway, we arrived in New York. I was a basket case, but I wasn't going to show it. I put my lipstick on. When I went out, there was someone waiting for me. And this air hostess gave my tickets to, to her and they took me to another entrance altogether and sat me down on a seat. And the immigration people were doing their things. And then an hour later, somebody calls my name. I get up and walk towards him. That was the first human thing mm. I saw. Mm. He took one look at me. He came out of his seat, went and got my seat back and put it in front of him and said, you look so tired. 
Oh. And he, oh my God, I have a human being with me. And he was looking at my passport and he said, why were you deported from London? I said, because I'm Iranian. <laughs> he did that. Mm. And then he, he looked at my son's picture and said, who is he? I said, he's my son. He said, where is he? I said, he's in London. He said, does he have another passport? I said, no, he does not. And then all of a sudden he goes, Jane, come over here. Jack, come over here. He calls all of these immigration people and he showed them my passport. He said, look, these idiots deport the mother and keep the son. Hmm. He was kind. It's he that thing so we, were, kind. we said at the beginning, kindness. So kind. And he said, well, how long do you want to stay here? I said, how does forever sound to you? He said, it sounds wonderful, but I'm not authorized. I can only give you six months. Hmm. But once you get in, I'm sure you'll be fine. Oh, my goodness. So he gave me six months. Oh. And at that time, from where he was to where I was going outside, tears were pouring oh. out. Oh, of course. Pouring out. It was as if I had held myself not to cry, to show a good face. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm strong. I'm woman, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And then I just broke down. And um, this is the crucial part. I had brought a photograph of my son and his birth certificate. And I was planning on going to the Iranian consulate to do his passport. When we got home, I asked my friend, because she had been in New York longer, see if you can find anyone who works at the consulate. Within an hour, we found someone, and she said, come there at uh, 10.30. So the next day, I went there at 10.30, and she got my passport. She got my son's everything, and she said, please make sure you're here before 12. Three times, she said, you've got to be here before 12. I said, fine. So I had an hour and a half, an hour and 20 minutes. I walked around, and I was there at 10 minutes to 12. Went upstairs, she gave me my passport, she gave me a new passport for my son, and I went back to the office. The minute I opened the door, everybody was saying, did you get it? Did you get it? I said, did I get what? Did you get your passport? Did you get his passport? I said, yes. What's going on? They said, Carter just made his speech and canceled all the Iranian visas. Oh my God. That day. That hour. That, that, the first day I got back to New York. I have goosebumps. That, to me, was meant that I was supposed to be in America. Yes. And you have said since that you felt like you were always going to be a foreigner in Britain. Yeah, absolutely. But that you could be an American absolutely. in America. Absolutely. And that I've... I have my criticisms of America, as everybody does, just like I criticize my mother, myself, Absolutely. my, my, but I get a swell of real patriotism, even though in this story, I mean, we've been sitting here for, for a while talking about some of the horrible acts that have been uh, attributed to both of our countries. Absolutely. The, the President Eisenhower wasn't great. President Carter wasn't great. The Shah wasn't great. 
the the Iranian people made mischaracterizations and misjudgments of the American people, but that when you do get down to the people, the mm. the individual who helped mm. you at the customs office, and the nuns who met you, and the people in the street, the driver who drove you to safety, the these are the things that you try in the course of some of this stuff to really Absolutely. focus on, and talk about skin of your teeth have have yet another safe landing. Things in Iran. Are, are continuing to, to spiral out. Jimmy Carter did make a failed attempt to save those hostages in 1980. It was called Operation mm. Eagle Claw. Yeah, and it yeah. was disastrous. Helicopters crashed and a bunch yeah. of Marines died and they didn't mm. even get close to rescuing anybody. And in addition to the heartbreak on the American side was the Ayatollah spun it as God does, doesn't want the Americans to win and they can't do anything. And and then things are further complicated. The Shah dies yeah. in, in uh, July um, of cancer. And then in September, Iran is invaded by Iraq. Iraq is kind of like, this seems like a great time. They yeah. have lost their mili- their best military ally is Absolutely. mad at them. And this would be, and there's a, a Shia Sunni uh, interest there where Saddam Hussein is a Sunni and this revolution was largely led by Shias and he doesn't want that to invade Iraq. Ultimately, that war lasts eight years. Over half a million people die. Millions and millions of dollars are spent and nothing changes. There's no... There's no boundary change. And no, that no... was the excuse for the Islamic Republic. The Islamic Republic to fight, sure. Yeah. And then 1985, you have Iran-Contra, which for those of you who don't remember, this is when mm-hmm. Oliver North secretly sells weapons to the Iranians and uses the money to fund an anti-Sandinista movement in Nicaragua. It's all very convoluted. It implicates everybody. Yeah. Then in 1989, just kind of the same year that the Berlin Wall is falling and all of these things globally are mm-hmm. happening, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini dies and is mm-hmm. succeeded. Um, you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation. It sounds, it looks so much like Khomeini. Ka, Khomeini. Khomeini. Let me use his name. Khomeini. And he, Khomeini. You on the K again. <laughs> so it's, so it's. So Khamenei. Khamenei. The Ayatollah Khamenei, Khamenei yeah. is the new one? Yeah. Okay. And Khomeini was the first one. And Khomeini. Khomeini <laughs> is, the, is the first one. Yeah. And the second one is what? Khomeini. Khomeini. Yes. Or Khomeini. 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 It's like, it's like ebony <laughs> ivory. It's great. Absolutely. Um, so he, he is now the new supreme leader. Mm. Um, in 1991, of course... Iraq invades Kuwait, the United States gets involved, Iran stays relatively neutral. And mm-hmm. how are your parents doing emotionally and psychologically at this point with well, the conflict? What when are their... they got the, that's my, that's what I feel. When they got the political asylum, my mother, uh, I think, lost hope. Mm. She had a massive heart attack. Oh. And she was only 61. Oh, my goodness. So young. Which, which... And was there any... Um, no, no, nothing. Oh, my nothing, goodness. Nothing at all. No sign of anything. Oh, my goodness. It was just a massive heart. I think I always feel that it was a broken heart, oh. you know. And what did your father do after that? He, he was... He lived alone for four years. And then he passed away. Mm-hmm. Did he speak with you at all during the the while they were in london and in those early days after the ayatollah had come back and they were witnessing people they knew and loved yeah, being he executed was um as i said his own family 
were religious, but he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And when the name of Ayatollah Khomeini became very prominent, he said, that's the end of Iran. Hmm. He knew right away. He knew right away. When religious people like that put their hands on a country, it's mm. so devastating. It won't ever go back to be, be a secular country. I would like to talk about your experience because you did go back. Um, yes. Can you tell me about what precipitated you returning to Iran in 1997? Yes. What happened was I was working with a small company and didn't like the way they were handling certain things, mm -hmm. which wasn't, as we say, very kosher, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I decided to leave. I said, I've lived in this country. I've gone through some hardship. I never in my life believed that to do things illegally or even a little bit illegally in order to get ahead. Mm. And I said, I can't do that. And let me let me also, correct me if I'm wrong or fill in the gaps, your financial situation was dramatically different. When, oh. when you and your family fled around, you left behind a, a sizable wealth and a lot of assets. And you and your and your lifestyle changed. You were still safe, and you had food, clothing, and shelter. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. there was sort of an, un, an a change of of I was life. Pay to, paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, and you were a single mother, yes. a refugee, raising yes. a child on your own. And your parents, who loved you, were able to help you in ways that were vastly diminished from the ways in which they could yes. they could offer they you couldn't. security before. And so at the time in 1997. My father has passed away. My mother had passed away. There was no one behind me. And you believed, you had reason to believe that there was a chance that you could get some portion of some of your assets Absolutely. that remained in I, Iran I, and I it was worth it to my, try. Actually, what happened was my friend called from Iran and she said, how long are you going? Because I was working in retail. She said, how long are you going to be working in retail? It's going to get harder and harder as you get older and older. So why don't you come? You might still be able to get at least your parents' house. So that's what triggered it. And my son had finished college and he was working in L.A. He had an education and he had a good head on his shoulder. He knew what he wanted to do and he was about to do it. So I thought about it and I said, why not? And within two weeks, I was able to rent my apartment, get my lease called back, and, you know, everything just worked out, mm -hmm. and I went to Iran. Yeah. When I went back, I had gone back to a different country. Mm -hmm. What was your expectation of what was awaiting you when you, when you would get there? My ex expectation was zero. I, I had no picture of what I was going to see. Right before the revolution, you were able to dress any way you wanted. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to wear a veil, you wore a veil. If you wanted to go out without one, you went out without. There wasn't any forced way of doing things. So when I went back, I was very shocked. It took me a while to realize that underneath, underneath, way underneath, the culture and kindness still exists. Mm. Tell me about that. Literally, at the beginning, I was not very courageous to go out alone, but I had to. But you had never worn a head, no. a veil or headscarf. No. Not even and, a scarf. And what did they tell and you? Plus, you, they don't have to tell you anything. When you enter, you have to wear, be wearing a scarf. 
And what were the consequences? I mean, I mean, you would be uh, you would be given a headscarf and told to put it on. Would you be arrested? Would you be fined? You were so would frightened you, that you had it with you. You just never can. Right. <laughs> you never. I understand. You know. But what happened was, um, you wore a long dress. I mean, like a jacket, like a coat. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the summer, you wore a linen coat, uh-huh. but you had to wear something long. Gradually, it changed. Now you can wear pants. You know. Anyway, gradually, women always come mm-hmm. on top. And I remember one day I uh, started walking. You know, I put on my, you know, rupush as we say, mm. and scarf, and took two thousand two months, which is like two dollars in my pocket, and I started walking. On the way back, there was a bookstore. And I'm crazy about bookstores. So I went in and I was looking at it. was, oh, my God, you have this book. Thank you. And I, I piled some books together, uh, which came to about 10,000 two months. And I only had 2,000 two months. So I put the money on top of the books. And I said, I live very close by. If you can keep them until this afternoon, I'll come back, pay the rest and uh, take them. So excuse me, lady, why are you insulting me? And I got frightened. I said, I'm not. Take the books. Take the books. And he called um, his assistant. Come. Take all the books. Take them to her house. Don't get any money from her. Just take the books to her house. He just gave you the books. He just gave me the books and said, take them. And whenever you come back, you pass here, come pay. You don't come back, the books are yours. Mm. That was the kind of kindness that Mm -hmm. you saw before. Mm. But from... Shops that you knew they were yeah. closed, but this guy just, I guess he trusted the way I looked yeah. or the way I talked. That he just I was loved maybe be. that you wanted all these books. And, yeah. um, Amazing. At the door, I begged the guy to please wait. I have money. I want to give you the money. He said, I'll be out of a job if I take the money from you. <laughs> <laughs> so I just gave him a tip and he went oh. back. And later that day, I went back and thanked him and gave him the money. And I became one of his good customers. Of course. I'm sure he was you know. aware this girl's going to come you, back. But you more still more. saw that kind of thing once. And that's what I used to do my business. Mm. Because I started working with antique fabrics and all that. And there was a street that sold mostly. And mm. that's a different. There's, um, there's a story that you told me about one time. We were <laughs> sitting here in one of our late nights uh-huh. about a party. Um, Can you tell me about that party? Yeah, it was near our new year. And uh, it was a family gathering with three friends. Everybody else. We had actually from a four-year-old to an 83-year-old. You know, it was really a family gathering. It wasn't dancing or music or anything like that. And, um, And was that in and of itself forbidden? You're not allowed to have a, a family gathering? At that time, I didn't know what was forbidden, what wasn't forbidden. Sure, sure. When they see a lot of people coming in and out, that gave them the permission to sure. go in. Or at that time, we realized somebody had called and said there is a party here, which it really wasn't because right. it was a, really a family gathering, aunts and uncles and cousins and all that. It was a big family and three three or four friends, one of whom was me. How did the authorities, did they pound on the door? Did they walk in? What they was walked your... in. It was a big garden uh-huh. and the house was in the middle. And um, there was someone at the door taking the cars and parking them different places. And they just walked in. 
They just walked in and uh, my friend's brother ran to the police and they brought the police. And these were... So from, who was it? The authorities were not the police? These were authorities from another county. Oof. It was a little bit frightening. Yeah. If it was a young party, youngsters dancing and all that, that would have been more understandable. But people from four years old to 92, 93. How did they treat you? What did they say when they came in? Did they give you any instructions? Did yeah, they, was, was, was there alcohol Women or on something? the other side, men on the other side. And that was it. And uh, no, the pro there, there was no problem because there was no alcohol. There was no, uh, nothing that was not, they took uh, uh, some albums. They took some, the records, and who CDs. Was, and who was the host of the party? I mean, the, was the was the owner of the house? Yes, 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 yes. And was this individual in particular well, trouble? Well, individual was extremely polite mm. and listened to everything they said mm -hmm. and called them sir, mm. where, you know, they were just ordinary policemen. Sure. And by the end of the night, they realized that they're with someone who is very well educated and, you know, that kind. so they calmed down. Mm. They started calling him sir, too. They arrived at nine, left at 11, and we hadn't had dinner yet. And we didn't want to spoil the party. Hmm. So we took off our scarves and all that. Because had, had you been wearing the veils when they came we in? Yeah, we had to get they, them and wear them. Sure, because you had not had them on when they first came no, in. Yeah, so you're, you don't, you're at home. And, no. Yeah, okay. No, we put them on and, you know, yes. fake smiles. Hello. <laughs> don't we just love Really everything? fake smiles. And uh, we had dinner. I don't, none of us remember what we ate. No. <laughs> it was really frightening. And two hours later, we, le we went home. Was your intention to stay in Iran when you came in 97? Were you sort of open to the idea that if, it, if you liked it, you would stay? No, or? no, no. It was a temporary thing. But I didn't realize how temporary. I realized if I wanted to get anything back, it would take at least two or three years. Mm. And I was prepared to stay that long and see what I can get because um, everything had been confiscated very short time after we left. Yeah. And we're talking about quantities that would change your life and your oh, son's absolutely. life and, it's, and my brother's well, life and everyone's and, life. And, yeah. Know, yeah, absolutely. And how long, absolutely. so how long did you, did you ultimately stay after you arrived in 97? I stayed because I started to work. Mm -hmm. I In antiques and fabrics. Yeah, I started mm -hmm buying fabrics and antique fabrics, designing different things and having shows. And gradually it became a very lucrative business. And I had shows, I had a show in London. I had a sh two shows in London, one in Paris, one in LA and, you know, and I had two shows in Iran. And, and was that's the how I lived. And was the government uh, interceding in your life at, at, no. at this time in terms not of at all. pressure or finance not and travel, all. you weren't restricted not at, at all. all? Not at all. When did you permanently leave Iran after that, that span of time? I was in Iran for four years mm -hmm. when I realized I'm not going to get anything back mm -hmm. because it wasn't just the government who had taken things. There were specific people who had put their hands on them and I wasn't strong enough to mm. fight them. So I knew that 
that was gone. But I was making a good living, mm -hmm. and I thought maybe I could continue a few more years and then come back. And I came back, I think, in 2006. My grandson was born in 2004. He was three years old when my son called me and said, my mom, I need you here indefinitely. Mm -hmm. He was getting a divorce. And um, he couldn't manage his son all by himself and work at the same time. So I said, OK, and I came back. And this is where you've been uh, yes. ever since. That was 15 years ago. And, you know, as we sort of suggested, things are at something of a stalemate within Iran. There's yeah. no question that, that the Supreme Leader will remain. And there's there's not been any significant movement. The uprising in 2003 and in 2006 and in 2009 and in 2000, they, they stir the waters, they make the news, but it doesn't seem to make any sort of fundamental shift. And yet there are things happening in Iran that when I was doing my research surprised me a bit. Um, for they have one of the leading robots, one of the leading humanoid robots ever developed was mm. invented in in Tehran. It's called Serena. It's very interesting. It walks. It knows yeah. a dozen languages. It can write. Um, they launched their first satellite in two thousand nine on the thirtieth anniversary of the revolution. Um, they in twenty fourteen the first woman and the first Iranian uh, to ever be awarded the Fields Medal in Mathematics. Went yes, to a woman named Miriam. But she wasn't in Iran at the time. <laughs> she was just she in Iran. She was in America. Interesting. I and didn't she know was that. Go she got to, n to be known in America. Unfortunately, she passed away ah. uh, of cancer. Uh, she was brilliant. 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 Yeah, I, mean, I mean, the leading mathematical mind in the world. Yeah. 2015, many people will remember the nuclear uh, deal, the Iranian yeah. nuclear deal was signed. And then in 2018, of course, Donald Trump withdrew. Mm from that agreement i'm not a very political person yeah but then you are you know sure. what i'm saying sure you're not and then you are at this what i think is until the things that are going on underneath all of this get settled mm -hmm. nothing is going to change mm. and can you give it's, me any idea what are some Iran of those that was supposed to be or supposed to become is gone and would probably take centuries for it to come back to where it was. And I know you said you're not political, and I know that. You and I are friends. Do you, however, ever look at the political landscape, the cultural uh -huh. landscape anywhere, including around and here in the United States, uh -huh. that gives you a particular pause or apprehension? Do you see ripples or reflections of anything like what happened in the Iranian Revolution happening around us in the United States. I mean, as you no. and I are recording this, no. there was just a hearing no. about the riot on the Capitol. And no, for some people even, might glimpse. It's no. not even close. What, what is the fundamental difference? Because the fundamental difference is um, religion. Yes. But when you see um, the, the, the evangelical Christian Yes, but element, the numbers. I see. The numbers are so different. Yeah, there's and there's far more secular there people is, in the United yeah, States, absolutely. and it is baked into our Majority constitution. Majority is secular. Mm -hmm. um, the laws are secular. What is your relationship to religion in general? Zero, mm -hmm. totally zero. At this 
stage in my life, I don't want to be told to walk to the bathroom with your right foot and come out with the left foot. I don't see the necessity for that. At this stage in my life, no use to be political. What can I do? Nobody's going to come and ask me what you think. Well, I certainly do. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, a, I understand. A, but I think that what you've general, just given is your political stance, even if what you're, even a, if what you're you, saying is I'm not interested, or or I don't see its usefulness, or any any politics that separates itself from any religion is yes. my politics. I yes. think that you you have valuable secular. insight, even if secular. your insight is to stay secular. Absolutely. Um, and you presently, Zari, you are. 76 years old. You mm. are gorgeous. You Every time I see you in the hallway, I mean, I, I, there's, I've never been able to hold a candle to how elegant and gorgeous and put together you oh are. Oh, my God. <laughs> at, any given day, at any given point, you are, you are beautiful. You are successful. You are happy. Your son is successful and healthy and in love and happy. And he has a family that loves him and loves you and is safe and secure. And it is because of your strength and your wit and your luck. Yeah, and I, I call it luck, actually. I don't know if there's a, there probably is a better word than this, but you won. You, you, your parents helped you and you helped your son and your son is helping his children. And it is beautiful so. to see. And it's, and I'm honored to be even in proximity to it. You oh are a great God. value in my life. I, <laughs> I, my daughter calls you Mumsy. <laughs> you are my emergency contact for, for school. You are oh uh, close. You're and You're making I, me cry. Well, Stop it. <laughs> well, it's true, Zari. I love you. And Thank I, you. I, and I feel you know like that. the universe, the universe um, brought us together. We were on opposite sides of the planet Absolutely. on this big day on December 7th, yeah. 1978. And through a series of wondrous uh, circumstances, we share a wall. And during a real tumultuous, weird time in history, we found each other. And I don't intend on ever letting you go. <laughs> no, neither do I. But you know something? Everybody has a beautiful peace inside them. Try to find that and bring it out. Mm. That's, that's human beings. Yes. See what's inside and bring that out. Oh, it's so wonderful, Zari. And you could have so easily have been cynical and and disgruntled and full of a, a righteous rage and you could have spent your time instead of looking for the beautiful peace of everyone um begrudging what you lost and being resentful for what Those happened to things. your family mm -hmm. things come and things go they cannot be the value of your life the value of your life is friends that like you that i have wow. the value of my life my children my grandchildren those are the values of your life, not a house that you had and you don't have anymore. I have a beautiful apartment. Even if I did have, even if I was in a little room, it's friends and uh, people that are in your life that matter. Nothing mm. else matters as much. Mm. How do you say amen in Farsi? <laughs> amen. <laughs> How do you say I love you in Farsi? Do set that Do set that Did I say it right? I love you. I love you. I, I love, love you, you too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, listener, for being with us. 
that episode clocks in just over 90 minutes. And if you're still listening, then you clearly dug us, and I'm guessing you're smiling just as hard as I am. <laughs> Sari is so awesome, and I'm so lucky to know her. Now, Hilf has two more episodes before we take a short summer break. You'll hear no new episodes in the month of August 2022. Before we begin season two, I'm going to Italy, if you can believe it, and I intend to come back with all sorts of healthy European nuggets. <laughs> you heard me. <laughs> oh, but not yet. Season one, episode 19 is next, and it is the much anticipated show we recorded live in the Glendale room last month. My guest was the side-splitting comedian, Rachel Scanlon, and the subject is lesbians. We had a blast, and I just can't wait for you to hear how it all went down. <laughs> Until then, this has been Hilf History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history's a party, and everybody's coming.